Good afternoon and welcome to the 49th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion about COVID-19 in Singapore and Indonesia with Sulfakar Amir. You can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch live. You can hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts on soundcloud.com. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as well. On Friday, I will talk about lungs, breathing, and COVID-19 with James Dodd and Javi Carroll of the University of Bristol and their Life of Breath program there, and also Sarah Milov from the University of Virginia. She's the author of The Cigarette, A Political History. As of today, May 21st, 2020, there are 5,047,377 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 4,952,139 cases yesterday. 1,562,714 of those cases are in the United States, up from 1,539,633 yesterday. There are now a total of 93,863 deaths reported in the United States. That's up from 92,712 yesterday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story every day and I'd like to continue that now. This is the obituary of Devin Takino by John McGonigal. This was published in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, April 15th. Rebecca Takino is a self-described background person who is happier when nobody knows who she is. This situation, talking to reporters, divulging sensitive information, reliving the worst few weeks of her life is understandably not comfortable for her. But Ms. Takino believes that in keeping with his lasting memory, it's necessary to tell her husband's story. He would want to help, Ms. Takino said, so that's what we're doing. Devin Takino of Denora, Pennsylvania, died April the 10th of COVID-19 at West Penn Hospital. He was 47 years old and a father of three with, to the family's knowledge, no underlying health concerns that would lead anyone to believe he was at high risk for the novel coronavirus. We have no idea why it hit him so hard. We don't know how he got it. We don't know who brought it to him, Ms. Takino said. It could happen to anybody. Just assuming that the senior community is the only section of the population that's going to be adversely affected by COVID-19 is wrong. People need to really get that in their heads and realize that this is real. COVID-19 became real and personal for the Takinos a few weeks ago. On March 20th, Mr. Takino started running a low-grade fever, coupled with what they thought were intestinal issues stemming from a stomach virus. He dealt with that over the weekend and was fine by that Monday. I'm so glad because I was looking for, I'm so sad because I was looking forward to calling off work, Mr. Takino told his wife. He went to work at the TTEC call center in Uniontown on Monday, that Monday, and experienced a slight cough, but nothing too serious. Tuesday, though, brought more stomach issues. Mr. Takino left work after 60 minutes or so, came home and slept for 16 hours. For someone who often played video games, Resident Evil was his go-to and made music at home late into the night. Anything more than six hours of sleep was out of the ordinary. Ms. Takino said she forced him out of bed on the morning of March 25th and took him with her sister to the closest Med Express urgent care. The physicians there noted that his oxygen levels were so low that he needed to go to the hospital immediately. The urgent care facility wanted to call an ambulance, but the family instead drove Mr. Takino to Monongahela Valley Hospital in Washington County. Ms. Takino dropped off her husband at the emergency entrance and never saw him in person again. Due to safety precautions, she and her family were not allowed in the hospital. Mr. Takino was initially diagnosed with pneumonia, though he tested positive for the novel coronavirus the following day. He was moved from an isolation room to the intensive care unit 
And just days later on March 29th, Mr. Tacchino was heavily sedated and put on a ventilator. He wasn't in a medically induced coma, but Ms. Tacchino said he was never conscious from that day forward. At no point while hospitalized did Mr. Tacchino's condition improve. He was transferred to West Penn Hospital in Bloomfield on March 31st. His lungs were compromised, his kidneys failed, and he needed six different medications to keep his blood pressure up. Ms. Tacchino was informed that if his heart stopped at any point, it would be impossible to bring him back via CPR or with a defibrillator. Last Thursday, that last Thursday, the doctor in charge at West Penn had their phone held up in Mr. Tacchino's room so that his family could FaceTime with him. He wasn't conscious, but Ms. Tacchino and their three children, Jonathan, Madeline, and Christopher, said goodbye that night. The next morning, around 8.15 a.m., the doctor called Ms. Tacchino to let her know that her husband started losing his pulse. 30 minutes later, he died. Ms. Tacchino and her family weren't able to be with him when he died. Ms. Tacchino and her older son, Jonathan, tested positive for COVID-19, but feel fine now. None of their family members, not even Ms. Tacchino's sister, who tested negative, could hover outside his room or be in the hospital. Instead, West Penn Hospital nurses stood by his bed so he didn't die alone, a gesture Mrs. Tacchino greatly appreciated. The staffs at both hospitals were absolutely incredible, Ms. Tacchino said. The doctors and the nurses, they were so attentive to us to make sure we were doing okay, just really supportive of us. And they tried, oh my God, they tried so hard to help him and he just would not cooperate. It didn't matter what they did, nothing made a dent. Mr. Tacchino, an avid Genesis and Rush fan who enjoyed all kinds of music, as long as it wasn't country, also loved trains. He studied old maps and the railroad history of Denora, pointing out where tracks used to be whenever the family drove around town. Ms. Tacchino said her husband was a proud nerd, someone passionate about his hobbies and the people with whom he shared them. If he loved something, he loved it, Ms. Tacchino said. He didn't go halfway on anything. It was all or nothing with Devin. He loved everybody. I don't know if he's ever met somebody he didn't like, and nobody's ever met him and didn't like him. Okay, I'm going to turn to the discussion. I'm so excited to speak with uh, my guest today, who's an old friend. Sulfakar Amir is an associate professor of science, technology, and society, and a faculty member in sociology at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. He is the editor of The Socio-Technical Constitution of Resilience, a new perspective on governing risk and disaster, and he's the author of The Technological State in Indonesia, The Co-Constitution of High Technology and authoritarian politics. And he's also the author of many essays and articles as well. His ongoing project now examines hidden vulnerability leading to nuclear meltdown in the Fukushima nuclear disaster. He has developed a framework of socio-technical resilience to assess the capacity of socio-technical systems for responding to disruption and crisis. He is also a documentary filmmaker. He's directed and produced three documentary films, all focusing on nuclear issues. The latest one is Healing Fukushima, which I understand you can watch on YouTube, and I strongly recommend that you do. It's an extraordinary film. It chronicles the role and experiences of medical experts in Fukushima in dealing with radiation hazard in the aftermath of nuclear disasters. Sulfakar Amir, welcome to COVID Calls. Thanks for having me, Scott. Good to see you. Good to see you too. And I want to remind people that you can get questions in using YouTube Live. You just put your question in the chat there and we'll get that question. Or you can email me directly, sgk23 at drexel.edu. Or you can put your question on Twitter and just make sure to tag me at USFDisaster. So, Sulfagar, I want to start the way I've been starting with, uh, with everyone. And it's just to find out how you're doing, um, where you're calling from, and how things are there. Okay, uh, thank you for asking. So I'm doing quite well, uh, me and my family. We've been staying at home for maybe seven weeks now. Uh, so I'm calling from Singapore, specifically, more specifically from uh, NTU campus where I live with my family. Uh, and yeah, I think we're doing quite well. Uh, Singapore uh, has been under lockdown for uh, since I uh, think uh, April 7th, 
And the government decided to, well, the first phase was uh, four weeks and then uh, two weeks into the lockdown, uh, the government decided to extend it another four weeks. Uh, so it's gonna be, uh, it's, it's gonna end on uh, June 1st. So June 2nd, there will be some reopening uh, in some uh, you know, uh, uh, sectors in, uh, in society, in, in the city. I checked the numbers today. First of all, I should have said thank you for coming on at what's uh, 512 in the morning right now there for you on Friday. It's much appreciated. Um, I checked the numbers and I saw there had been 23 deaths in Singapore from COVID-19. So you've kept the, it seems that the government has kept the death rate down, but can you, can you walk us through a little a little bit of the sort of trajectory here. Um, how did COVID-19 first man itself, manifest itself in Singapore? Um, you know, what was the initial reaction of the government of institutions there? Okay, so the, uh, the first case, the first confirmed case of COVID-19 in Singapore uh, was announced, I think, some sometime in January, in the third week of January, and the 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 the, the patient zero is a Chinese national from Wuhan, and after that it increased to thirteen you know cases, and the first case involving uh, Singaporean uh, local uh, Singaporean was on January thirty first. And one week after that, it you know jumped to around 33 you know people, and that's when the government decided to you know change the uh, the emergency uh, the warning system to orange status. So Singapore has this system of labeling the emergency situation called Dorscon, and the highest one is red, and uh, and. Uh, in in February, the set, you know the government changed it from I think uh, no, green or yeah yellow to to orange yeah from yellow to orange and you know, for a while the situation was uh, seemed to be under control until in uh, early March uh, there's a new cluster uh, forming among. You know, migrant you know, workers in Singapore, and this is when the crisis began to, you know, uh, you know, to spread mm. out uh, more rapidly, and yeah, and then when you know the COVID nineteen reached this, you know, in a particular population, it started to increase the uh, sort of the anxiety among uh, Singaporeans, and that's when the government said, okay, I think we need to take a you know a more you know strict measures. And early April, they decided to, you know, to go uh, on lockdown. So tell us a little bit about the health system in Singapore. You have a national health system. Um, do you have a, like a national centers for disease control? What's the structure like in terms of, because you were describing this sort of yellow to orange to red. So somebody's giving these making these judgments and, and putting out these announcements. Who, how is it structured there? Okay, so uh, before I give you the details of the uh, healthcare system, uh, we need to go back to uh, 2003 mm. uh, when, stars, when SARS you know, outbreak you know, uh, reached Singapore. So Singapore was one of the few countries back in 2003 that was affected by SARS. And similar to COVID-19, SARS originated in China and then spot, and then start, and spread to other countries, including the U.S., uh, Canada, Hong Kong, of course, is the ground zero of, of, of the outbreak, uh, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and et cetera. So Singapore was one of the uh, countries affected by SARS. And it was quite traumatic experience because at the time, uh, you know, the outbreak killed 33 uh, local Singaporeans. And uh, it, uh, it infected around 300 people and Singapore has to be locked down for two months. And mm -hmm. it cost Singapore around you know, $50 billion you know, because of the 
of the of the you know, lockdown of the country uh, uh, and the isolations uh, of Singapore from uh, you know other you know uh, from travelers, foreign travelers. Uh, so this experience really did something to the governments that you know they feel vulnerable uh, to a similar uh, to the, this kind of you know crisis, uh, and they they learned their lesson. So since 2003, they've been actually preparing, you know, infrastructures, uh, 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 medical system, as well as you know, human resources in healthcare you know, system, so that they will be able to respond you know, more properly to a similar you know crisis. So when uh, COVID-19 start to break out in Wuhan uh, and and eventually reached in you know, Singapore in back in January. Uh, mm. uh, uh, you know, it is something that they've been you know waiting for. So they've been preparing for it. Mm. Uh, and uh, and and the way Singapore responded to the crisis initially at the initial stage was something that you know uh, quite impressive because of the ability of the uh, healthcare system in containing you know the virus uh, so you know learning from SARS you know Singapore decided to uh, uh, to create a sort of CDC you know of Singapore which is called NCID National Center for Infectious Disease and it has you know you know uh, 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 a facility in terms of you know the the, the biosurveillance, uh, the the medical science, and uh, as well as the human resources in in tackling uh, you know uh, any you know crisis of you know virus outbreak. And NCID you know has been playing a central role in responding to COVID nineteen. They're the one who you know organize all of the testing uh, and they uh, coordinate all the hospitals around the country uh, to uh, respond to the crisis mm-hmm. and uh, the one indications that you know the government has been uh, doing a, a great job in responding to the crisis is the fact that uh, none of the healthcare you know workers have been infected or even died uh, due to uh, you know COVID nineteen, uh, and uh, the 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 uh, case fatality rate has been very low as well as you can see. As you said, you know twenty two people die compared to twenty two thousand you know, cases confirmed cases. Um, so so that yeah sort of yeah yeah that background is is really important and sounds like one where you know we've talked a lot in these last few weeks on the uh, in these discussions about lessons learned which you know is a is a rhetoric that's deployed a lot but lessons learned often don't turn into lessons um, implemented and you're describing a situation after 2003 it sounds like the Singapore um, the health system there the health service really really took those lessons on board. So the government there. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. I mean, it... go ahead. Go ahead. So I wanted to. I wanted to. To there was something you were talking about though that the there was a sort of a hot spot that emerged among migrant communities, and maybe people aren't as familiar with kind of the societal breakdown in Singapore. So. Um, how many people live in Singapore? How many of them are migrants? And help us understand a little bit about what it means with COVID-19 breaking out um, in that population. Okay, so there are two things that uh, that that I think uh, 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 COVID-19 is different from SARS. You know, the first one is that you know this uh, illness, this disease. Uh, have a category, have one category of asymptomatic cases, right? It's different from SARS. You know, SARS in the spread was the uh, 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 SARS become contagious when someone gets the virus and shows some symptoms, and then they start to spread it to other people. But you know, in COVID nineteen. Uh, there are, you know, uh, cases uh, that show no, you know, uh, symptoms at all, and this basically ruined the 
you know, the buyers of Phelan's you know, uh, system in Singapore because mm -hmm. they have to change the protocol, and et cetera. Another uh, uh, factor that uh, really changed in the, the, the game here is the, the, the scale and the rate of the spread, right? Uh, when SARS, you know, uh, happened in Singapore, they, you know, the government has the ability to contain every single case, you know, very uh, uh, effectively. Uh, but, you know, with COVID-19, it spread, you know, very rapidly. And uh, there are some cases where, you know, the government or the, the health uh, authorities could not identify the source of the infection. Uh, so this is what they call the uh, uh, the unlinked cases, right? And it is these unlinked cases that you know begin to that actually cause the uh, the infection uh, uh, cluster among migrant workers. So and and that's how you know uh, it becomes sort of a, a, a different situation from you know SARS back in two thousand three. So let me just give you a uh, sort of uh, a short description mm -hmm. of you know Singapore populations. Uh, in Singapore, uh, there is a 5.7 million people living here. Uh, uh, citizens and, re and permanent residents make about four million. Uh, yeah, four million uh, three thirty thousand know, people, and the rest is what they call as a non-resident, uh, mm -hmm. including me. I'm part of the non-resident population. But then among these non-resident populations, the big chunk is uh, the so-called uh, uh, work permit holders, or basically, you know, migrant workers. Mm -hmm. So there are 700,000, you know, migrant workers mm -hmm. uh, live in Singapore working uh, sort of a cheap labor uh, uh, that provide you know, labor for you know constructions, manufacturing uh, uh, facilities, uh, uh, in infrastructure uh, uh, technicians, and etc. Uh, and uh, because of the cheap labor, you know, um, they make a you know small amount of you know salary you know, every month. Uh, but then the problem is that Singapore is a very one of the most expensive cities in the world when it comes to housing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is highly uh, unlikely for this you know, cheap labor uh, to, to rent uh, or to live in a normal you know, uh, housing like you know, residents and, and for, uh, citizens you know, enjoy. So the, the, the solution to that is that employers provide them with dormitories where they but these, you know, migrant workers, you know, live uh, uh, in in four to five, you know, storage uh, uh, buildings, and 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 they have to share, you know, their room with maybe a dozen of people. So, mm -hmm. so they have to, you know, live in in the room uh, with uh, that is used for by uh, ten to twelve people, and you know, uh, and and it's very packed, very you know, cramped. And, and they're crowded. And this is, it is these conditions that actually, you know, uh, 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 become sort of the, the sort of the the, the ground for the, you know, COVID-19 infection uh, to, uh, you know, to spread, you know, very rapidly and eventually becomes a, mm. a sort of a national crisis that because, you know, it contributes to the number uh, the high number of you know, of confirmed cases in Singapore. So, does that means the government must have had must have intervened very quickly in terms of surveillance within those communities? I mean, still we're talking about a uh, a very low case fatality rate compared to other countries. So, if these migrant laborers who are living in these very um, dense conditions, um, if there's a hotspot there, that's something that. Do you, do you have a handle yet on how the government reacted to that? I mean, or has that not been, has that information somehow not, not available? How do you become aware of it? Okay, so I think uh, uh, when it comes to information, uh, uh, we need to, you know, I need to show some appreciations to Singapore government because 
you know, they are quite you know, transparent in terms of providing you know, information of number of case, confirmed cases, the number of you know, testings that they do every day, the number mm -hmm. of you know, uh, people they are under treatment, and et cetera. So uh, uh, there is no problem, with, I mean, there's no significant problem at all regarding how the government you know, share information mm -hmm. about the situation. And uh, that also includes the way they responded to the uh, to the dormitory crisis. And every uh, every day, uh, uh, Ministry of Health, you know, uh, uh, holds a press conference where they explain the situations of the day, and they also give some details about the situation with you know migrant workers. Mm -hmm. So basically, the way they you know, responded to the crisis with migrant workers is that they um, they split up the the uh, the workers into two big groups: those who are infected and those who are not. Uh, but then they uh, you know they ask them to remain in their you know dormitories. So basically, you know, all dormitories are isolated. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, of course, you know, these workers were are given uh, paid leave. Uh, provided with food and medical assistance, uh, and those are those who work in you know essential industries are allowed to work, but then uh, but only after you know they, they go through the testing and 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 you know two weeks of you know quarantine, and after the government and then after you know uh, uh, you know they are uh, make make sure that you know they are clean that they. You know the government uh, allowed them to start working again. Uh, so uh, it's, it's interesting uh, if you see the way you know, how minister uh, 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 sort of make uh, three categories of you know cases in on their website. One is on uh, a citizen and residents. Another one is. Uh, uh, Migrant workers uh, or work permit holders who live outside dormitories. So there are, you know, migrant mm -hmm. workers live mm -hmm. outside dormitories. And uh, another one is those who live in dormitories. Mm -hmm. And you see, you know, three graphics that show, you know, different patterns of, you know, infection. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, uh, for the past maybe, you know, two months, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the case numbers of of the uh, of migrant workers in the dormitories has been, you know, the highest, you know, contributor mm -hmm. to the total, you know, count of Singapore. Yeah. people that you're listening to COVID calls and my guest today is Sulphakar Amir. I want to turn now, Sulphakar, I know you're, so Singapore has lots of neighbors, uh, even though it's a city-state uh, and Malaysia and Indonesia, particularly Malaysia's had, I was just looking, 114 deaths. Indonesia's had 1,278, I think, as of today. Can you speak to the to the case of Indonesia as, as best you know it? How has COVID-19 played out in that country? Okay, uh, Indonesia is uh, completely the opposite to Singapore in terms of you know, government response. Uh, although the number may be quite you know, uh, comparable, but that's because the number of testing in Indonesia is very low. Mm. And uh, there's a number, uh, there, there are reasons why the, the number of testings you know, have been very low. Uh, but I think what happened in Indonesia is quite similar to what happened in the US in terms of you know, the role of the political leadership in responding to the crisis. It's, uh, from the beginning, uh, the, the Indonesian government uh, has been, you know, uh, downplaying, you know, the crisis, uh, uh, and they, uh, well, there is a, there's some moments when the government remains in you know, denial of the existence of COVID-19 in Indonesia. So maybe I think about a month until, uh, you know. Uh, you know, the, uh, until the government you know, announced that there are confirmed cases in Jakarta, 
And you know, since then, you know, the situation is you know is it's getting worse and worse, especially because the reluctance of the uh, central governments in taking the necessary measures to respond to the crisis. And uh, I guess in terms of the, uh, the, the number of cases, uh, it's been uh, you know, going up uh, up to now. Uh, and uh, this is despite the fact that the government has implemented what they call, uh, uh, what, is, what is it called again? The uh, social uh, restrictions at the large scale. Okay, it's this weird name, uh, but there is so basically. So actually, according to uh, the uh, health disaster law, uh, there are two kind of responses that the governments can you know, take. One is you know a total lockdown, okay, or full uh, regional uh, quarantine. Uh, another one is uh, social restrictions on a large scale. Now, uh, these two are basically the same. I mean, in, in terms of, of, of how it is implemented. The only difference is that when the government you know, decided to take uh, uh, the, the total you know, uh, regional quarantine or total lockdown, uh, the government is obliged to provide you know, daily needs to every single citizen, mm. okay? And the government doesn't want to spend money for that. Right. <laughs> so they go to the other. They go to the other one, uh, and but still providing in you know, a social assistance like food and etc. Mm. But not as much as as needed. And this creates some problems in many cities because of the lack of, you know, uh, 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 assistance that you know the people, especially the. The, the low income people you know mm. receive you know every day uh, and there's been some uh, tensions between central government and uh, a local governments a local government here refers to the provincial and the municipal you know, government mm -hmm. so there's been some tensions that I think I think similar to the situation in the US where you have this you know fragmented politics between the federal you know states mm. and federal government and the state government, right? Uh, and there has been sort of a, a, a common situation in Indonesia these days. And this create or this cause a lot of problems in terms of, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the effectiveness of the response to the crisis. Mm. And uh, as, as you can see from data, you know, the, the number of cases continue to, to, to go up and uh, we still don't know whether or when Indonesia to, uh, you know, will see the curve you know, flattening. Uh, and it's, it's quite you know, uh, worrying because the neighboring countries like you know, Malaysia, uh, Thailand, uh, mm. Vietnam uh, are doing a very good job and mm. it's been you know, uh, you know, uh, completed their, their job in flattening the curve, but Indonesia is still you know, all, you know, no, no, uh, still dragging behind because of, you know, political as well as institutional uh, uh, inadequate you know, responses to the problem. I mean, the, your analogy you're drawing to the United States to me is fascinating. And, and one of the ways that it's, that it's very provocative, I think, is also the far-flung nature of Indonesia, the problem of governance in, in Indonesia. Um, and, you know, just to bring it back to the example you were giving with of SARS in 2003, I mean, you have the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami and the incredible effect on Indonesian society of that. Were there any lessons learned from that that you think have, have helped the Indonesian government react in this moment or lessons there were lost somehow? Well, there's been some uh, cases of potential you know, uh, epidemic uh, in the past, including, of course, SARS, uh, MERS, and avian flu, right? And uh, during SARS, Indonesia was quite safe. Only three or four people uh, were infected. And uh, that's 
probably due to the fact that the forest, you know, uh, uh, you know, cannot live uh, uh, in a tropical, you know, mm. uh, 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 climate, right? Uh, uh, and uh, during the MERS, you know, situations, Indonesia also responded quite, you know, well, and also avian, you know, flu. Uh, so there is an the infrastructure there uh, in terms, uh, you know, uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, hospital capacity, uh, medical doctors, and etc. And I think uh, if we look at look back, you know, five or ten years ago, Indonesia did quite well in terms of responding to uh, to potential outbreak. Uh, but then, in you know, in this COVID nineteen pandemic, it seems that the government uh, is not using you know the uh, uh, resources enough to mm. you know to to uh, you know, to uh, to create some kind of uh, 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 massive uh, uh, ability both from the government side and from the uh, community side in in you know in responding mm. to the crisis in withstanding to the the, the virus outbreak mm. and. Uh, well, Indonesia, you know, learned you know uh, the the lesson from tsunami in two thousand four, and also from other you know outbreaks. But then, institutionally speaking, there is no one single you know, agency uh, responsible for you know handling the crisis. I mean, at the moment, the only agency that has sort of closers. You know, uh, authority in handling you know uh, outbreak is the national uh, disaster mitigation agency. So, so it's, it's so, sort of a FEMA of Indonesia. Uh, but the problem is that this agency does not have enough capacity uh, and uh, and expertise in you know in mm -hmm. uh, handling this kind of situation. And it has been you know. Uh, I think uh, it is just, it's just struggling, uh, not only because of the lack of you know uh, uh, expertise, but also because of the lack of authority given by uh, by the by the central government. So there's been some you know bureaucratic politics that placed this agency to play its role in more properly, uh, and especially because of the tensions between uh, ministries who. Uh, which you know tend to undermine you know the severity of the crisis and those who think that Indonesia should do more in terms of you know uh, 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 keeping people from uh, from going uh, to work, uh, going to school, and etc. Mm. Uh, and so the, the the interest between the economic the, you know the tension between the economic interests and the and the concerns of public health has been you know sort of. Uh, 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 I would say, uh, you know, dividing, you know, uh, issues uh, that eventually cause the government to be even, you know, more inaptitude, inaptitude to 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 respond to or to to make, you know, uh, good policy and effective, you know, uh, action. Yeah, I, I see this this comparison now that you've made to the United States is even more is even more clear to me. I want to I want to remind people also I'm speaking with Sulfakar Amir on COVID calls and I want to encourage you if you want to get a question in this is a good time to do it use YouTube live chat or put it up on Twitter. So Sulfakar I was remembering um, well these days remembering being anywhere outside of my house is quite something I was remembering being with you at MIT a few years ago when there was a screening of your uh, documentary Healing Fukushima, and I believe your collaborator Shilin Lo was also there at that, and uh, Mike Fisher was there give, uh, giving commentary. Mm -hmm. And I was reading back through Mike Fisher's commentary on that, and um, I just wanted to first just pause with that on, and remember that time with you because it was really great and and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. really it's encouraging people to, to watch the film, but I wanted the, the thing I've been dying to ask you about is that, so in making that film, I mean, you travel to Fukushima and you interview doctors, 
who had made the decision to stay in Fukushima Prefecture despite the, the unknowns of radiation. And one of the things that's been really challenging with the COVID-19 pandemic is seeing it because it's a yes. disaster that occurs behind closed doors. It occurs in emergency departments. Even, you know, I read the obituary to you, to everyone today, that this story of families saying goodbye to their families at the hospital, basically, it's the last time they can see them. And I think you've grappled with that already as an artist. I mean, I think this is what you, part of what Healing Fukushima is about is, is capturing risk that can't be seen and the psychological impacts of that. I just have been wanting to know what's on your mind as a filmmaker right now, thinking about COVID-19, how you would picture it. Maybe it's too early to give you this. I don't know if you're thinking of making a film. I hope you are, but what's on your mind about, about seeing this disaster? Well, one thing that we can distinguish, you know, uh, Fukushima disaster and this COVID-19 pandemic is that when the nuclear disasters hit, you know, uh, uh, Japan, Japan was was alone there. So the Japanese society was alone. They're the one who experienced the disasters. So we don't really see, you know, what, what really happened in Japan. Only in the aftermath that we have a sense that, okay, this is something that, this is the experience, the traumatic experience that the Japanese, especially the people in Fukushima, you know, had to go through in order to survive the, you know, the radiation, you know, uh, hazard. And now back to COVID, you know, a 19 pandemic, I feel like we are now in that situation, but this time Japan is not alone. Everyone is having it. Right, uh, and but also different in terms of the fine, you know, uh, frame, because we're dealing with uh, a, a much longer, you know, crisis compared to, you know, the a nuclear disaster. Well, of course, uh, the radiation hazard in in Fukushima is still is still happening actually up mm -hmm. to now, although maybe. The scale and the, the magnitude of it has been much, you know, lessened and reduced you know, with uh, uh, the contamination measures uh, undertaken by the governments and the local government in Fukushima. Uh, but then, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is something that it continues to escalate, and we don't know when it's going to end. Mm. Of course, everyone hopes that the vaccines will be you know, uh, developed, you know, so as soon as possible so that mm -hmm. we can, uh, you know, start to enjoy a normal life. But then this is a moment where I see that healing Fukushima is, you know, highly relevant because the anxiety, you know, the, the fear as well as the uncertainty is very much the same, mm. right? The way we interact with other people, the way we are losing our trust to the uh, ability of institutions in in, a pro, in providing protection you know, to to the people, and in terms of the uh, the uncertainty of the of the crisis, because of course every day you will see you know new you know uh, publications uh, written by you know medical doctors and etc. about COVID nineteen. So we got an explosions of knowledge about COVID-19. But then, you know, this, you know, a large amount of knowledge does not guarantee that we have really, you know, a, 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 a real understanding about, you know, about the crisis, about the virus, about how we, uh, what we need to do to, to cope with it. And not to mention, you know, the aftermath of this, mm -hmm. because I don't know, maybe, maybe it's too soon to talk about, you know, what will, uh, what we will feel when the the whole, you know, pandemic is over. But then, I think, you know, the aftermath will, will last long as well because mm -hmm. of the impact, 
is so much deep and so much you know, uh, uh, painful for many people uh, that is gonna be something that you know that changes in our our history as humankind as a modern society uh, and this is something that will you know uh, uh, will deserve sort of you know uh, new reflections both by humanities and you know social scientists uh, in understanding you know what really happened with in our society when you did the interviews for the film Healing Fukushima and you talked to doctors there. Um, what did they say? When you asked them the question, why stay amidst the danger, the uncertainty, what kind of what kind of answers did they give? Because I think if we're looking for solidarity and hope right now, that's one of the places I look for it. Yeah. It, I think uh, the strongest motivations that I, you know, that I sense from, you know, their commitment to stay is that, you know, they are medical doctors. So it comes from their, you know, a field of expertise mm -hmm. that somehow obliges them to stay in order to survive, not only for themselves, but also for the community. So there's a strong, in a bone between their expertise as well as the commitment to you know to provide any protection to the people so it's something that yeah uh, we uh, uh lynn and i you know we co-author uh, a paper based on our interview and we call this a sort of i forget the term uh, serviceable expertise, something like that, which mm -hmm. is very much inspired by, you know, uh, Sheila Jasnov. So, mm -hmm. uh, if you, you know, uh, 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 you can you can read the article and appreciate, you know, your comments on it. But basically, we see, uh, you know, that this commitment and motivation to stay and 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 become uh, uh, and provide service, medical service to the people, is due to the nature of their expertise. Uh, that has been, that that is institutionalized in the hospital, in the, the medical, in the, in the care facility, as well as the you know the interactions between the doctors and the community. Some of those very doctors are probably providing COVID nineteen support. Oh yeah, definitely. Yes, yeah. So this will be something that you'll be following up on, I'm sure, in your own. In your own research, already have some ideas. You already have some ideas, and, and yeah, I'm sure you do. Well, um, I, I I think that's a really fascinating set of observations to think with. You know, sort of in, in closing out that it was this this expertise and this commitment that comes um, through the practice of being a medical doctor, um, and that transcends many other kinds of boundaries. You know, this this pandemic has been carved up as a national thing, or maybe in the United States now, unfortunately, it's a democratic thing or it's a Republican thing. Yeah. Um, and I've been looking for places also where there's resilience and where there's reservoirs of, of capacity and hope. Uh, and it's absolutely in the kind of things you've been talking about. So um, I know we're up on, on time here. I just wanted to give you the, the last word. How has this changed your, your own research? Well, uh... For the past two, three months, I've been doing some small projects uh, to help uh, uh, governments in Indonesia in dealing with the crisis. So we have we created this uh, small lab called Social Resilience Lab in an NTU, where me and my students uh, develop some models uh, and simulation, as well as uh, uh, providing some sort of uh, uh, Guidance for uh, you know disaster policy, uh, disaster response policy for mm. you know governments in Indonesia. So I've been and I've been so I've been involved with uh, a, a number of group, a number of groups, you know, civil society groups in Indonesia that uh, collects data uh, from you know uh, from uh, the community. So it's a sort of a crowdsource 
you know, data collection system mm. uh, as a sort of alternative source of information in addition to what the government, uh, what official information is provided by the government. Mm. And we've been uh, helping, uh, uh, you know, local governments in identifying the problems in, you know, in, in calculating uh, the, uh, the, the, the infection rate as well as uh, providing some, you know, uh, guidance uh, on how to mitigate you know, the crisis. So uh, it changed, you know, quickly, you know, what I've been doing basically. So, yeah, and um, I'm quite fascinated by what I've been doing now. Yeah. Well, I want to remind people you've been listening to COVID calls and we are on Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow we're going to talk about lungs, breathing, and the pandemic with James Dodd and Javi Carroll of the University of Bristol and Sarah Milov from the University of Virginia. And today I've been talking with Sulfakar Amir. Sulfakar, thank you so much for making time very early in the morning there to fill us in on what's going on in Singapore and Indonesia and to talk about films and this interesting work you're doing. I think we're going to have to have you uh, back in the summer to continue the conversation. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Stay healthy. We'll see you all tomorrow at 5 o'clock. Bye.